If you'd like, you can uh, follow along and take notes on page 5 in your bulletin. Um, if you want to keep track of, of where we're heading today, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for your faithfulness to pervert, preserve it for us. Um, now we ask that your spirit would help it um, to transform us, help us to learn from it, help us to hear your voice as you speak uh, to your people today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been tracking with Habakkuk in this conversation he's having with God, and uh, if you remember two weeks ago, we talked about uh, God, uh, Habakkuk praying this honest prayer to God, asking God, are you there? Do you care? And God responding, um, you haven't even seen the half of it yet. And Habakkuk uh, being uh, taken aback by what God said his plan was going to be, to use the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to judge his own people. And so then last week, we talked about, uh, we started with chapter 2, and we're going to stay there today, obviously, but um, we looked at what does a heart of faith look like when it prays um, honest prayers. And last week we talked about uh, that the heart of faith is expectant as it rests in God's sovereignty, remembering that God has a plan, that God has his place, that he's in his place. Um, I found this from Tim Keller this week. He, he had this to say about prayer, particularly that kind of prayer. He said, prayer can lead us to shake ourselves and say, why was I so scared? This can't hurt me as if God is with me. And that's the kind of praying we talked about last week, this expectant hope that God um, has a plan and that God is in his place. And, and so it helps uh, allay our fears as we face what's going on around us and inside us. Well, this week, uh, it's going to be a little different. Um, listen to what else Keller had to say. He said, prayer can also lead us to say, why was I so oblivious? How could I have justified this? Prayer brings perspective, shows the big picture, gets you out of the weeds, reorients you to where you really are. But this week, we're going to look at um, the heart of faith when it prays. Uh, the heart of faith examines itself and repents of its sinfulness. And this is uh, the part where honest prayers can, can take a turn, where the focus uh, goes from the holy God with whom we have some issues to the holy gaze of God on our issues. So buckle your seatbelt, this is going to be difficult. Um, and I've been telling you the story of uh, when Christine was burned in a grease fire 20 years ago uh, as, as kind of a, a story to help, help us think through what do we do with God when hard things happen um, and uh, shared with you some of the honest prayers that I prayed during those, during those days. And I want to continue to 
to use pieces of that story to help illustrate uh, what we're seeing here in Habakkuk. And I'll, I'll remind you, part of the reason I'm doing that is because the first time I preached through Habakkuk, um, I had preached through chapters 1 and 2, and then before I could get to chapter 3, um, this accident happened where Christine was burned with grease, uh, almost 40% of her body, and spent a month in the burn unit, and uh, two years of recovery, and, and still, uh, in some ways, still recovering from it 20 years later. But I remember um, that night when she was burned and the uh, ambulance took her to the hospital and I followed in the car. Um, got, I got to the hospital and they had her back somewhere taking care of her and I was just kind of standing in this hallway uh, waiting. I, I didn't know what to do, who to who to ask what to do. I was just standing there waiting for someone to tell me what was going on with my wife. Um, And as I was standing there, I started feeling some pain on my left elbow. What is that? And so I I looked down and noticed that I had a blister about the size of a dime forming on my elbow. And I thought, oh, yeah, when when I got home that night and saw the flames fill our sun porch, and I was trying to get to Christine. I opened the door, and there was a grease burning with a flame all over the floor in the porch. And when I was trying to get through, I slipped and fell, and apparently laid my elbow in the grease. So that's what that was. That's why it hurts. Have you burned yourself before? Gotten the blister? It hurts. And so a, a nurse was coming by, and I just... I asked her, I said, hey, could you help me for a minute? Could you look at this? Apparently, I got burned here, and I've got a little blister forming and and stuff. And she kind of looked at me like, what planet are you from? But then she didn't say anything. She said, hang on a minute. And I thought, well, wow, aren't you sweet? (laughs) She came back with a Band-Aid and stuck a Band-Aid on it and kind of walked you know, went on her way, it dawned on me at that moment that the look that was on her face was, what is your problem? 40% of your wife's body is a blister right now. And all you can worry about is your little elbow? Thankfully, she was professional enough not to say that. But, but it was true. But isn't, it, isn't that typical, at least it is of me, that when, when hard things are happening in my life or someone else's life, um, I turn inward. It becomes about me and how does this, whatever it is that's going on, affect me. Um, and, and I think we all do that to some degree. But... There's, that's the sinful side of it, but there's a sense in which when hard things are happening in your life or things in your world are, are hard and unexplainable, there is a sense in which God wants you to look at yourself. He wants you to examine yourself. Um, he would like for you to look at your heart. And I think 
think that that might have been going on with Habakkuk. Um, this is where I think Habakkuk is at this point in this prayer dialogue that he's having with God. Um, as the people of Judah are facing what he called a people more wicked than them, than themselves, who will come to wipe them out. Um, and, and in chapter 2, verse 4, that Nathan just read, it, it describes them as their soul is puffed up and not right within them. Um, I think Habakkuk, as he hears the woes that are pronounced against Babylon, I think he starts to hear those same woes could be pronounced upon my people, Judah. Those same woes could be pronounced upon me. There's some self-examination. The reason I, I think that is because what he ends with is, oh God, I tremble in wrath, remember mercy. Because Habakkuk didn't know when this was going to happen and whether he might be in the middle of it. So I think part of praying honest prayers is being willing in the midst of our complaint to God to take a look at ourselves. And so the bulk of chapter 2 are these woes against Babylon. But as we're going to see this morning, those same woes could be pronounced against Judah because Judah was guilty of the same sins. So let me explain. Uh, look at what God had to say about the Babylonians. In cha- uh, verses 4 and 5, he described them this way. They're puffed up. They're not right. They're, they're not upright. They're arrogant. They're never at rest, and they never have enough. Uh, They have declared independence from God. And they are proud, arrogant, and voraciously hungry for whatever they want to satisfy themselves. In verses 6 to 17, a longer section, here are some of the phrases that describe Babylon. He heaps up what is not his own, He gets evil gain for his house. He sets his nest on high. He builds a town. He founds a city. He makes his neighbors drunk to take advantage of them. And in doing all these things, the Babylonians trampled the lives of others, God says, even to the point of shedding blood to build their cities. And so, not only have are they independent from God, but they're also injuring people. And then verses 18 to 19, um, talks about worshiping an idol, an image that's covered in gold or bronze or whatever that's silent and has no breath in it, yet they expect it to act like it's alive and give them life. So they're independent of God, they're injuring other people, and ultimately... They worship idols. They make idols out of the things God has given them. Well, this is the me first heart at work. Now, rather than go through each woe and go into all the details of all the verses, what what I think I'm seeing here, and this is how I'm looking at this passage, um, is that there's kind of a, there's a relational nature to the sin 
that's happening with Babylon. And there's three kinds of relationships uh, in which they're sinning. I mentioned the, there's a, this me first heart in relationship with God. They're independent of him. So that relationship is broken. There's the me first heart in relationship with people. They injure others to build their own kingdoms. So their relationship with people horizontally is broken. And then there's the me first heart in relationship to creation, to to the resources God has given them. They've made idols out of them. So those three relationships that we were created to enjoy, to give ourselves to love and serve God, to love and serve people, and to love and serve all that God has made, they've turned to where they are using God and others and all that God has made to serve themselves. But there's also a relationship between these three kinds of sin. And in verses 4 to 5, there's this arrogant refusal to trust or depend on God, which then leads to, verses 6 to 17, the building of their own kingdom at the expense of other people. And all of that is about, verses 18 to 19, the idolatrous worship of their real God themselves. So those were the Babylonians. And those were the sins for which God said they should cry out, woe is me. Woe was a, was a, a, a cry of terror because of coming judgment. And God said five times they should cry out in terror because of the judgment that he was sending on their way for the sins they committed. But what about Judah? Now Habakkuk said that the Babylonians were more wicked than the people in Judah, although he had just been complaining about the wickedness in Judah. But, but what about Judah? My claim is that they also were guilty of the same sins that Babylon was. Where do I, where do I see that? Well, Habakkuk had a contemporary, a fellow prophet in that day named Jeremiah. They were both prophesying to Judah at the same time period. Um, And so now that you've heard God's description of Babylon, I want you to listen to how God described Judah through the voice and prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 13 says this about Judah, God's people. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And then God speaks to the heavens. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is God describing his own people. In those days, there are basically three ways you could get water. You could have a spring of water on your property that just was a natural, flowing, clean, crisp water that was always there. Um, And that's why they would call it living water, because it it flowed. Or you could have a well, dig a hole down to the water table, find the water underneath the earth and drop a bucket down there and bring it up. The third way was to dig a cistern. The best way I can try to describe a cistern, look it up on Google somewhere, is 
you know the kiddie pool at the swimming pool? It's really shallow. A cistern would be kind of like a, long, a big space of a kiddie pool size, a shallow pool that they would carve out of limestone, particularly, uh, typically, and they'd put a, a place in the middle of it so that when it rained, the water would all collect and go into, and then they would carve out of that rock underneath a big well. So it, was, it worked like a well, except it was a rain catcher. And the cistern would catch the rain, it would go down into the, uh, the big hole that they carved out of the rock, and then they would send a bucket down there to get the water. Well, what happened often is you would spend all that energy and time carving out that cistern and that pit in the rock, and then the limestone or whatever the rock would have a crack in it, and it would leak. So you spend all that time and energy working trying to find some way to collect water to satisfy your thirst and find that when it rains, it doesn't even hold water. And so that's what Jeremiah, or God's referring to through Jeremiah, is that his people had forsaken the best possible way to get water, a spring of living water, and have turned and spent all of their energy and effort digging a cistern that's broken and won't hold water to begin with. This is how God describes the sin of his people. They've forsaken me, the spring of living waters. And they've gone out and they put all their efforts into digging a broken cistern that can hold no water. You see, in relationship to God, Babylon was never at rest and never had enough. But Judah, in relationship to God, was digging their own cisterns. They had forsaken God, the spring of living waters and dug cisterns that would not satisfy. So their relationship with God was was broken by their sin. And so as we pray real-life prayers, we have to examine ourselves and repent of our sinful me-first hearts. We must dig down into our hearts and uncover our independence, our tendency to live life apart from God, our tendency to forsake Him, the spring of living waters, and to go find satisfaction in other places. The root of our problem, the root of our sin problem, is that we have forsaken God, the spring of living waters. And so we have to ask ourselves in honest, real-life praying that examines ourselves, am I going to repent and confess just the surfacey sins? Oh, I'm sorry I got angry. I'm sorry I said that. Um, I'm sorry I did that. Or am I going to get beneath that and and repent of what's ultimately going on? God, I've got this, and I'm going to do this my way. That's what's lurking under all the surfacey sins, is we've forsaken the spring of living waters, and we're going to try to do it on our own. In relationship to people, Babylon used, abused, and killed people for their own kingdom's sake. But according to Jeremiah 7 and 9, you can read it later, Judah was guilty of murder, adultery, lies, slander, deception, and using others. They used people to fill their empty hearts. See, sometimes that broken cistern can actually be a relationship. And so we will use a person to try to fill our emptiness. 
Just like Judah used people, and Babylon used people to build their own kingdoms, to prop themselves up. And so, honest, real-life praying examines itself and its sinful heart and asks itself, am I using a relationship with another person as a broken cistern to fill myself? Sometimes we take our thirsty hearts to people and we say, fill me or else. James chapter 4 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not that your desires, your thirst, are at war within you? And James describes that we go to people and we say, I want you to fill me. I want you to be God to me. People disappoint us. And we double down and demand more. People continue to disappoint us. And our relationships turn into war. And James says, you should have asked God. He's the spring of living waters. So, like Babylon, Judah had sinned against their relationship with God. They'd sinned against their relationship with people. And they also, Judah sinned against their relationship to creation. Babylon worshipped the gods and goddesses of storms, nature, wisdom, writing, love, and fertility. Today, we read books written by people who do that. Anyway, um, basically, they worshipped what worked for them. Remember in Habakkuk 1, it says that it described Babylon as coming in and using a net to just capture people. And then God says, Babylon then turns and sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Babylon worships what works for him, for them. What about Judah? Well, they also worshiped things that they had made or accomplished with their own hands, things they possessed or their economic power. In fact, for example, one of the, the favorite gods, little g, that, that Judah kept running to was Baal or Baal, however you want to say that. Um, Baal was the god of agriculture. So essentially, Judah was abandoning God, the spring of living waters, and worshiping the god of their work. Do we ever worship what works for us? Do we ever worship our work? Um, sometimes our broken cisterns are things that God has created, gifts that he's given us, possessions or positions or work, and we use those to numb our hearts or try to fill our emptiness. So in real praying, real life prayers, I have to ask myself, where do I go besides God to satisfy or to numb my soul? What broken cisterns am I digging? What things that God has given me uh, am I using to satisfy my soul? <laughs> the danger in praying real life prayers is that God will reveal himself 
in all his holiness. Um, and when he reveals himself in all his holiness, we see ourselves in all our sinfulness. Keller said it this way. It is a simple fact that the nearer we get to supreme beauty or intelligence or purity, the more we are aware of our own unsightliness, dullness, and impurity. The closer we get to see God in all his holiness, the clearer becomes the sight of our sinfulness. When Christine was in the burn unit for those 31 days, there was a process that she had to go through every day called debridement. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but in order for burn wounds to heal properly, they have to heal from the inside out. And so debridement was the process of scrubbing out the dead flesh. Think about 40% of your body. So every day, they would take her, sometimes more than once a day, take her to this room and lay her out on a table and scrub out her wounds. It, I wasn't allowed to go back there. And I'm glad I didn't witness it. It was so awful that they had to give her drugs, pain medicine, well in advance of each of those times that they did that. And friends, I think that's a great illustration of what God lovingly, as the great physician, wants to do with us. Sometimes he uses the circumstances in our lives to debride us, to scrub out all the, the relational sin that's there, the deadness that's in us, and to heal us from the inside out. Suffering exposes our bro- broken cisterns so that in prayer we will turn to the spring of living water. Suffering exposes our functional Savior so that in prayer we will turn from them to embrace our real Savior. I think Habakkuk must have heard these judgments against the Babylonians and recognized those same sins in his own people and perhaps even in himself. How could he and the people of Judah ever hope to be righteous, ever hope to survive the coming judgment? And what are we to do when in our real life praying, God uncovers our unrighteousness? Just before these woes were given, God said this, the righteous will live by faith. We talked about that last week. Just after this indictment of these woes, Habakkuk prayed a prayer of faith. He said in Habakkuk 3.2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Why would Habakkuk pray, in wrath, remember mercy? As he hears what God is about to do to Babylon, after he uses Babylon to judge Judah. Why would he pray in wrath, remember mercy? What did he know about God that would make him pray such a thing? He knew the story of God. 
He knew God's story from the beginning. He knew that with Adam and Eve, even in God's wrath, God had mercy by shedding blood to cover their nakedness with animal skins and by promising a redeemer in Genesis 3.15 who would one day crush the head of the serpent even though the serpent would strike the heel of the Savior. He knew the story of Noah and the flood, that even in God's wrath, God had mercy on Noah and his family. They were saved from God's wrath by trusting God's merciful plan for salvation. Get on the boat. You'll be saved. That was mercy. He knew the story of the Exodus, of the Passover, that even when God poured out his wrath by the angel of death, taking the firstborn, God had mercy and provided a way to be saved from that judgment. Put the blood of a spotless lamb on the doorposts overhead and on the sides. And if you do that, the angel of death would pass over. God's people were saved from God's judgment by trusting God's merciful plan for salvation. He knew that God could remember mercy in the midst of wrath because of the Exodus, which is what next week we're going to see that Habakkuk talks about, the Exodus of God bringing his people out of Egypt. God heard the cry of his people and sent a deliverer. Those who trusted God's merciful plan for their salvation were saved and set free. And finally, Habakkuk knew that God could remember, wrath, uh, remember mercy in the midst of wrath because of the whole sacrificial system that God put into place. There was no way that sinful people should have a relationship with a holy God. So God provided a way for them to have that relationship by providing atonement for the sin that got in the way of the relationship. And so then sinners who trusted in God's merciful plan for salvation in the sacrifice were able to be in right relationship with their holy God. Habakkuk knew the story. And he knew that over and over and over again in wrath, God remembered mercy and provided a, a merciful plan for his people to be saved. But on this side of the cross, we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those pictures and all those promises. Jesus is the ultimate answer to Habakkuk's request, in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk prayed first for justice, but when confronted with the truth of what justice would mean for him and his people, then he cried out for mercy. I had a friend tell me this week that, that he had that kind of conversation with God, where at first he was demanding justice. But then, after a little while, in tears, he asked for mercy for himself and for the person whom he was demanding God justly take care of. This is what real life praying can do if we're dealing with the God who in wrath remembers mercy. I remember I was going through a time when I was, I thought, being wrongly accused and, and attacked by someone and there was a point where God confronted me with this question. Jimmy, are you willing to beg me to show your enemies the same mercy that I've shown you? 
not that this person was really my enemy, but that's kind of how I was envisioning it. Are you willing to, sh- to pray for mercy for others the way you beg for mercy for yourself? My honest answer is no. Only God can make my heart cry mercy for others. And so finally, I just I, I want to encourage us that after we have examined our hearts and repented of our sinfulness as God has exposed that, the heart of faith then embraces God's mercy and rests in God's salvation. I'll close with this. We sang the song Isaiah 43. That was the song the worship team sang during the offertory. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Do not fear. That song. Uh, the week before Christine was burned, we had gone on a mission trip with our youth group. And the high school kid that we had leading our worship, our, our singing that week, taught us that song. Christine and I had never heard that song before, Isaiah 43. Never heard it before. But we both fell in love with it. We just, oh, it's so rich. Biblically rich, the tune, everything about it just ah, spoke to our hearts. We learned that the week before Christine was burned. The song says, when you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. I will be with you. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. And so we sang that together in the hospital. during some of those 31 days. Later on, Christine would write this about her time in the burn unit. She said, as I fought for my life and struggled with faith, God whispered his promises to me. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. But, I know, Along with those comforting verses came confusion. How, how could God say, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, the flames will not consume you? She was burned. Well, obviously, this metaphor, as one commentator pointed out, water and fire are opposite dangers. And they encompass every danger in between. What God was trying to say to his people was, though you walk through fiery trials, flood trials, and everything in between, I will be with you. I will be walking through them with you. Because I have redeemed you. You are mine. I've called you by name. Christine came to know during those days Um, that God's covenant with us, God's promise to us, is that he will be our God and and we will be his people. The promise is not the promise of a life free of floodwaters and fire. It's the promise that those floodwaters and fires won't ultimately destroy us. God doesn't promise that we'll never go through physical or emotional pain. But he promises that he'll go through them with us. And he was with us. 
Because Jesus came in the flesh to be Emmanuel, God with us, we can know that he is with us. Because Jesus was overwhelmed by the flood and Jesus was consumed by the fire in our place, we can know that he's with us. So hear this. No matter what life does to wreck us, we can know that God has redeemed us from our sin, rescued us from his wrath, and reconciled us to a right relationship with himself. He has already solved our biggest problem and met our greatest need through Jesus, who was wrecked for us. It's only because of Jesus that in wrath, God can remember mercy. So when you pray with a heart of faith and God exposes your me first heart, then cry out, Father in wrath, remember mercy. And then turn to Jesus and embrace the mercy that God has shown you through him. Rest in your Savior who has redeemed you and called you by name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good word this good reminder that um, whether flood or fire, because of Jesus, you're with us. Um, And so we beg you, all of us, whatever it is we're dealing with today, we beg you, in wrath, remember mercy. Have mercy on us. We do not deserve your goodness, and yet you delight to give it to us, so have mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, the sinner. In Christ's name we pray, amen.